0: If I could do a Thanos snap of my fingers and have Taiwan be completely and legally independent with no threat of invasion from China, I I would do the snap. That's really what a lot of us want. But you can't. It's not Marvel Comics, and you can't wish Beijing away.
1: Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands.
2: Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my wonderful colleague at the Woodrow Wilson Center, Chris Sands. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. And today we have a twofer because we have another brilliant colleague of yours from Wilson who you will introduce in a moment. But our topic today was inspired by the Chinese spy balloon that was flying over the United States uh, a little while ago. I happened to be in Montana the day it was discovered over Montana. So that was... Interesting, but we thought it'd be important to have a China expert to talk to us about everything that's going on. There have been a lot of developments on China relations with the US and Canada. Uh, and I can't think of a smarter, more well connected, more interesting colleague of yours or colleague of anyone's than, than our guest today, Robert Daly. So let me turn it over to you to uh, fill our listeners in on his uh, amazing background.
1: Oh, sure. Absolutely, Scotty. And I'm, I'm excited because Robert is not just a China expert. He's a Canada-friendly China expert, so it makes this very easy. He's the director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States and has a really interesting background. He served as a U.S. diplomat in Beijing, as an interpreter for Chinese and U.S. leaders. His Mandarin is excellent, I'm told, by people who know better than I do. He, including President Carter and the Secretary of State, uh, Henry Kissinger, as head of China programs, he's run them at Johns Hopkins, SICE, Johns Hopkins generally, Syracuse, and the University of Maryland. And he, this is a twist, he has been a producer of the Chinese language versions of Sesame Street. So there you are in in good with the Muppets, um, recognized East and West as a leading authority on Sino-U.S. relations. He's testified in Congress, lectured widely in both countries, and regularly offers analysis for top media outlets. And I mentioned that he was Canada-friendly. He's worked uh, in Canada, talked to Canadians, and has uh, a home not far from the Canadian border up in New York. And more importantly, he's played hockey with Canadians. I'll let him tell the story, but uh, Robert, you, are, you belong here on Canusa Street, so welcome
0: well it's 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 good to be here Chris Scotty. I've been looking forward to this
2: thanks. We're really looking forward to the conversation too so um i'm we're it's february seventeenth twenty twenty three as we record this just so people know uh and a lot is happening a lot is always happening in China relations with the rest of the world. Uh, but as I mentioned, the, the spy balloon that has been dominating the news and subsequent UFOs being shot down um, really got us thinking about um, China in a new way. And so I wonder if we could just start with that, Robert. Like, when when you first saw the reports of the balloon, what, what, what were you thinking? What went through your mind? And then what have you been thinking about subsequently?
0: So that's a very interesting, I think, important way to frame the question. I think that for those of us who have been paying close attention to US-China relations right along, actually the spy balloon doesn't tell us anything new. It doesn't because we have been, uh, in here in Washington, D.C., concerned about a growing China challenge, what some called a threat, what some view as a Cold War, uh, for quite a long time now. Uh, I would say that really since about 2016, when China built artificial islands in the South China Sea, that China's claims to uh territorial rights in that in the South China Sea were then very soundly denied by the Permanent Court of Arbitration. China ignored the Court of Arbitration and militarized the islands. And more than any other one action that China has taken, that was the thing that, that changed attitudes in Washington. And afterward, with the Trump trade war and with COVID. Um, more and more people within Washington came to see China primarily as a security threat. Uh, That then became true, I think, in Canada, uh, in part because of the two Michaels, not only for that reason. And those more skeptical views also spread through Europe. But they were mostly confined to foreign affairs specialists in the capital. So for them, again, the spy balloon, while let's face it, a good story, sort of fun. Something shows up, we get to track it, we get to shoot it down. Uh, It has a certain theatrical value, but really no new news. Its importance, I think, historically will be symbolic, as your question suggests. For most Americans, China hasn't been seen as a threat. Washington has described it that way. But for most Americans, it's been over the horizon. And now suddenly it's directly overhead in a way that seems very clear and very understandable. They are up above us. Uh, Matt Pottinger, who worked in the National Security Council under Donald Trump, uh, has labeled it Red Zeppelin, uh, which I rather like. Uh, So I think its symbolic importance matters a lot to Americans. And and maybe in this, Canadians, uh, because of China's hostage-taking, the two Michaels, you're probably a little bit ahead of us. I think that that instance brought the nature of the China challenge home to people across the country in Canada, in a way that it didn't here. But I think the balloon has done that
2: interesting. i wonder, I wonder, Robert, if the the calls to shoot it down immediately um, made sense to you, or you know, the u s the u s. sort of official position was, uh, we need to follow this, you know, figure out exactly protect, first of all, protect whatever they're trying to listen to, jam the signals or whatever, uh, follow it while it's in the air so that we can learn as much as we can about it. And then when we do shoot it down, do it in such a way that we can recover as much of it as possible with with as little risk to people on the ground in the United States as possible. And and that was all done and is in process. Um, sh- should the U.S. have immediately, um, shot it down as a, you know, or would that have escalated tensions? And also let's talk about the fact that the secretary of state canceled his trip, which was much anticipated well along the planning. And he was about to do what's your reaction to, to both of those things.
0: Well, I, I do not think that we should have shut it down, uh, shut it down immediately. On this one, I'm, I'm going to trust the pros, uh, the people in the military and the intelligence community, who have the equipment to track this balloon. They know far more about it than you or I. They know far more about it uh, than the members of Congress and the Senate who are calling for it uh, to be shot down and what I think was really sort of a a silly fit of macho bluster. Uh, We now know that we had been tracking this balloon since it took off from Hainan Island and as it was blown north. And I see no reason not to take the administration and American military professionals at their word that this did not constitute really an escalated threat to American sovereignty or security, that we learn more from studying it. And, excuse me, um, it's easy to call to shoot it down right uh, right away. If it lands on a farmhouse and people die, you don't feel so tough. So I see no reason not to take the administration at its word. At the same time, the administration, I think, did overreact uh, in shooting down three probably innocuous, harmless Uh, weather balloons, uh, which were more like 20,000 feet. They they were potentially a threat to commercial aviation, but we can't just go around blowing everything out of the sky. You know, what, what we're learning now very, very suddenly is that the atmosphere is full of tens of thousands of balloons and various forms of space junk, and they're drifting around in the atmosphere like jellyfish in the sea, and now we're asking, like, acting as if somebody threw a Portuguese man-of-war in our bathtub.
2: <laughs> That's a great analogy.
0: It's gone a little bit overboard. Um, at the same time, you, know, you can't send up somebody with an F-35 to take down a balloon. They can't just pull back the cockpit and throw a spear through it, right? They, they don't have these low-tech weapons. So I, th- I think that we handled the Chinese uh, balloon quite well. We apparently now have recovered all of the wreckage, so we'll be learning more about its capabilities. I think that missiles to take down uh, these other much smaller jellyfish uh, was probably overkill. On the other hand, this is new. We've all of a sudden discovered as a nation uh, the importance of near space strategically and how much is there. And so we're still on the upward slope of the learning curve. I think that's fine. Now, Blinken, as you said, in the wake of this, did not go to China. I can see making this call either way. Uh, most classic diplomats would say, look, the worse things are, the more acute the problem, the greater the obvious importance of having these meetings. So of, of course he should go. And in fact, there have been many on the American side that said we should have we should have used this as a chip. You know, China was embarrassed. They were on their back heel. Can we use this to get concessions? Answer, no. China's not that embarrassed, right? So we, I don't think we'd have had any extra concessions. Uh, but I think that, He could have gone. I don't mind him canceling the trip to let Beijing know uh, how important this was to us. But we need to talk regularly and soon. He may be meeting on the uh, outskirts of the Munich Security Conference with uh, the head of Chinese foreign policy, Wang Yi, this weekend. I think we'll get back on track in our discussions with China.
2: Yeah, I think I, I tend to agree with you, Robert, and I think canceling the trip, as much as it was a signal to China, it was a single signal to Congress. Right in the middle of all of the heated rhetoric and bluster, and the unanimous vote in Congress to condemn China, we don't see unanimous votes very often. Um, for the secretary to be on a trip, it might have been th- the domestic audience might might not have, uh, you know, allowed for productive conversations, perhaps.
0: No, that, that's that's true. And I, I guess I probably come down on the side of postponing. And the, and the administration did say yeah. that it was a postponement of the trip. At the same time, I, I, I worry a little bit and have for about two years that the Biden administration is too fearful of being branded as soft on China by Congress. I think that the Biden administration, uh, by and large, has handled U.S.-China policy extremely well. And they need to just be out there, chest out, saying, we've got this, we run this. Uh, it's the running foreign policy is the domain of the executive branch. And when you get, you know, these sort of silly over the top critiques, my preference would be for the administration to get up in Congress's grill, uh, and tell them to back off and we've got this. Now, clearly they've made a different kind of political judgment and they're worried, you know, that for 2024, uh, Biden is going to be branded as, as weak on China, but they're also, the Republicans are clearly going to brand him as weak on China anyway, so why not really own what has been, I think, a, a quite strong and quite intelligent policy?
1: Robert, it was interesting. Uh, one of the things that I paid attention to in terms of that reaction to maybe popular concern about the balloons and the fact that this really triggered something with the general public was Justin Trudeau really leaning in and you know got the headlines. He had he announced that he had ordered uh one of these objects that turned out not to be one of the red zeppelins uh, to be shot down. Uh, what do you what do you think this episode has said about the Canada U.S. sort of alignment on China? Do you think that in Beijing they will see that you know Canada and the U.S. were working together? There was clearly a capability there, or do you think they will will see um, the Canadian reaction as maybe being a little bit um, after the fact and and more for show?
0: Well, I think you can expect uh, China always to demean Canada if it sees a chance. To, you know, they, they love to uh, say that Canada is sort of America's dogo or running dog and an attempt to split Canada off from the United States by insulting Canada as being a lackey of the United States. And that's sort of a default move of their propagandists. But I think that serious people in Beijing, and most of them are serious, We'll see the growing alignment between North American partners on Huawei, on critical minerals, on the Arctic, uh, here, you know, through NORAD. So again, while you'll, you'll, you'll hear the insults from Beijing directed at Ottawa. I doubt that that's really the message they're taking away. Um, so I, I I think we're actually doing quite well. In partnership vis-a-vis China, there isn't and there will not be perfect alignment. Uh, I think that imperfect alignment probably helps because it causes us to, to to question our own judgments and to to think a little bit harder about our interests. And so I, you know, as you know, we've had a lot of conversations with Canadian partners. We genuinely welcome, you know, their somewhat different views on the on China when they occur, but there are fewer and fewer of them. Not because the United States diplomats are so charming and persuasive, but because of what China itself, in fact, does. And that's true in North America. It's true in Europe. It's true in Northeast Asia.
1: And, and Northeast Asia jumps out because I think you said this about the U.S., that sense that the public had that China was not over the horizon, but, you know, a, a kind of a present danger or right overhead. Uh, Canada came out with their Indo-Pacific strategy. uh late last year, and one of the things they tried to emphasize was working in the North Pacific with, with Japan and with Korea. And I wonder, do you think that this episode reinforces that? It clearly was a balloon that sailed over Alaska, Canada, so as a reminder that Canada really is a Pacific player, and that they that this North Pacific region is not, uh, not at all on the margins of Indo-Pacific strategy, but is an important piece where Canada is well-positioned.
0: Sure. And since the announcement of the balloon over Montana, uh, we've heard Japan, we've heard Taiwan and other countries saying, yes, you know, we've had these same issues. These balloons have been over our territory. And in some cases, uh, as is the case in North America, they're discovering this ex post facto, looking back at data they didn't know how to interpret, now they do. And so now, uh, and again, Beijing can't be happy about this, we've got the world focused on this balloon program. We know quite a bit about it. And Canada and the United States have set a precedent for taking these things down. Uh, And that would make it easier for uh, Japan, uh, for example, to take it down. You can be sure that we'll be working with them on methods of detection. This is a new area of domain awareness, apparently, and we're learning something new about this every day. We actually have pretty good detection capabilities. It's just that we haven't been looking at near space and looking into these areas, but we know how to do it. So I think we'll learn fast. I think we'll share that tech. Uh, And I I think that, you know, Canada also having been involved in shooting one down, it helps make that a norm. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, that if this this is over, one of these balloons is over your country, uh, that it's legitimate to take them down. Now, there, there are questions there under international law because near space is not technically part of sovereignty. The law about Uh, how much of the airspace above your geographic territory is actually yours is vague. In fact, it's it's not even vague. It's largely unwritten at the levels at which these spy balloons operate. Um, But I say there's now a, a norm for taking these things down. And I think that that helps, as you say, for Canada with all of its Um, Pacific Partners,
2: Robert, this is fascinating, and we're going to take a little break here. But when we come back, I want to go back to something you started with, which is uh, the South China Sea. So so let's when when we come back, let's talk about not just the balloon, but the prospects for Chinese aggression towards Taiwan and what the world is thinking about that. Are you red, white and blue or just red and white? Beaver or Bald Eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already, that's why you're here. The question is if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox. And you know you do. How about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada US relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. We are also troubled that Beijing has deepened its relationship with Moscow since the war began. Looking ahead, any steps by China to provide lethal support to Russia would only reward aggression, continue the killing, and further undermine a rules-based order. Well, that was just a soundbite from Vice President of the United States Kamala Harris talking about the same thing that we're talking about here uh, with Robert Daly, and that is uh, the role of China in the Ukraine conflict. So back, back to our pod.
1: Scotty, you had a question teed up, so over to you.
2: Well, that's right. And Robert really is one of the world's leading experts on China, outside of China, uh, and he was inside China for a long time. So I wanted to Uh, pivot from the conversation about near space, which is really interesting, uh, to another conversation that's happening in Washington and was happening in earnest before the spy balloon incident, which is the question of Taiwan. And we saw Speaker Pelosi go to Taiwan. We've seen the Secretary of Defense go to Taiwan. And we know that China um, doesn't appreciate that. (laughs) And so, you know, in defense circles, we wonder about we've got we've got what's happening in Ukraine. Does China take this as an opportunity to try to reclaim Taiwan? Are they watching carefully how the world responds to Ukraine? Is it disconnected? Like, how are you how are you thinking about Taiwan, Taiwan's sovereignty, and as you mentioned at the top, Chinese aggression in the South China Sea?
0: So first the, the chances of conflict over Taiwan have certainly gone up. There's no question about this. China has uh, been increasingly aggressive uh, in sailing around Taiwan and flying around Taiwan with ever larger numbers of ships and planes. We know from China's rhetoric and from its longstanding policy that it is determined to incorporate Taiwan into the People's Republic of China. So the Taiwan Straits are getting more dangerous. Absolutely true. In Washington over the past year and a half, I'd say, there has been a growing sense that this that China might move decisively against Taiwan sooner rather than later. And this has been driven, uh, I say, in part by uh, Chinese aggression. It has been driven by specific uh, statements of Xi Jinping's uh, that China must complete the rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation by 2049 and he has separately said that that rejuvenation cannot be achieved until Taiwan uh, is incorporated and then there seems to have also been uh this past fall the fall of 2022 more specific intelligence findings which have caused those who have access to that intelligence I am not one of them uh to think that China might want to move very soon indeed by 2027 in some tellings 2025 2024 so there's uh, increased worry about that. And the United States, uh, of course, we conduct war games on this all the time, and the results of a lot of those war games have lowered our level of confidence and have resulted in um, requests for ever more, you know, different different weapons, more weapons, a different force structure uh, within Taiwan. So th- there's, I think within the defense communities, there seems to be something nearing a consensus that this is could be imminent. I am not of that view. I want to make clear that uh, I haven't seen the intelligence uh, upon which some of these fears are based. Uh, But I think that the risk to Xi Jinping of moving against Taiwan is probably still too great. His prime directive is to maintain the Chinese Communist Party's monopoly on political power in China. The most important thing he has to do to achieve that is to continue to develop the Chinese economy. Taking Taiwan is eventually, at some point, a piece of that. He he, he must do it. They have promised to do it. But day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, it's about economics. To move against Taiwan and to fail is probably fatal for the Chinese Communist Party. And the United States, in concert with its allies and with Taiwan itself, has the ability to create enough doubt about prospects for success in Beijing that the decision to move on Taiwan continues to get postponed. They're not going to change their policy, but our goal is to have them decide that you now is not the time. This isn't the quarter. This isn't the year. Whatever it may be,
2: it's the old rag the puck strategy.
0: That has to be the approach. We we say so we can't change what they want to do. Um, but we can have them decide that now is not the time and that they need to focus on on other issue areas. And of course, deterrence is a very, very important part of this. We're doing the deterrence piece pretty well. Diplomacy traditionally has also been a part of this, and here we're not doing so well. Uh, Since 1979, since we established formal relations with mainland China and broke relations with Taiwan, we've always had a deterrence piece, making China wonder if they could succeed, and a reassurance piece. And the reassurance piece has been continued promises to China, which are founded in documents, like the Shanghai communique, but that were also carried out in practice in the way that America dealt with Taiwan and didn't deal with it at official levels, that reassured China that the United States remained neutral if deeply concerned. We have now largely abandoned that position. And so I'm not sure that there's anything that we could say at this point, given our actions over the past several years, that would reassure China that we were a force for neutral, peaceful management and or resolution of the cross-straits relationship. I think that we've, we've crossed too many red lines and China has itself become far more aggressive, which is why I say it is more dangerous but I, I am not among those who think that this is imminent.
2: Well, that's interesting. Along those lines, Robert, what, how did you react to when President Biden, who is you know a foreign policy guy, shall we say, uh, based on his career in the Senate, when he said we would defend Taiwan, and he said it multiple times, and it was a different, it was different in the way he articulated it uh, in media interviews than U.S. policy. Um, was that deliberate in your judgment? Is he is he trying to send a key signal there? Um, and and how would China receive that?
0: Well, so the last question, how they would receive it, that's quite easy. That one, they're they're simply outraged that we would make you know any of these statements. What did Biden intend? Uh, it's very hard to say. Now he said several times that the United States had an agreement that we had promised to defend Taiwan. That is false. We have we have never made a promise to defend Taiwan. We have said that any attempt by China uh, to settle these questions through other than peaceful means would be a matter of grave concern. Grave concern is not a promise to defend. So uh, has Biden misunderstood the policy? I suspect that when he says we would defend Taiwan, that is meaningful because he is speaking from the heart as he sometimes does. Rather than speaking from uh, an atmosphere and an institution characterized by diplomatic message discipline. You know, all of this stuff about what is our one China policy, it's actually very complicated. People compare it to angels dancing on the head of a pin. It's ambiguous. It's based on creative uh, fictions, which, frankly, it's a miracle that they've lasted as long as they have. Um, It's always been inconsistent. It's always been sort of a maddening policy. Uh, and so I suspect that when he says these things, he speaks he's speaking from the heart that he would like to defend Taiwan. But that always gets walked back by the White House. It's not at all clear that the people of the United States think that it's worth tens of thousands of American lives to keep Taiwan out of the clutches of the Communist Party. We would like Taiwan to remain independent. And, you know, China knows perfectly well that we feel that way, even when we profess neutrality. I mean, if we could to use a Marvel Universe Avengers analogy, you know, if I could do a Thanos snap of my fingers and have Taiwan be completely and legally independent with no threat of invasion from China, I I would do the snap. That's what really what a lot of us want, but you can't. It's not Marvel Comics, and you can't wish Beijing away. And so I think that the president is sort of caught between his formal briefings and the other loop that's running in his mind as he hears all these formal briefings. But that's just a guess.
2: Well, and surely. The situation in Ukraine has changed the game for China in terms of estimating whether or not the world will stand by um, for violations of sovereignty. What the world views as violations of sovereignty, right? Well, or am I am I wishful I could, thinking there?
0: Could, that one can cut both ways. The world does not recognize Taiwan as a sovereign nation state. It does not. Uh, and this is part of the one China policy. Almost all countries have relations with mainland China. None of them recognize Taiwan as a sovereign nation state in the same way that all of them recognized Ukraine as a sovereign nation state.
2: But isn't, isn't that a bit of a fiction, Robert? Because, I mean, to appease China, if you will, the world has said, OK, we're not going to say Taiwan is, a, is its own nation, but we sure do treat them as if they are.
0: In many ways, but not all. China is we say a de facto but not a de jure independent nation. So yes, in fact we treat it in many ways as an independent nation, but we we until recently were very careful in under law not to treat it that way. But no, you're right. I mean it's, it's it's the the one China policy is essentially a form of blackmail in which China says if you want to have a relationship with us, you have to pretend that you don't, that you think Taiwan is maybe a part of the People's Republic of China, even though you and I know that it isn't. So there's, yes, it's a fiction. At the same time it's a fiction to which we're accustomed, it's a fiction that has kept the peace for 40 years. It is a yeah. fiction under which Taiwan has gone from being a one-party military dictatorship to being a multi-party democracy and very wealthy. It has worked. It has kept the peace. You know, even if you could say it's nonsense, it's been... Highly effective nonsense. And we don't know what lies on the other side of that. China gets to decide because it can put give the order at any time. So, yes, it's 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 the fiction elements of it are maddening, but it has worked. And remember that most Americans, if asked to die, don't know the difference between Thailand and Taiwan and can't find either one of them on a map. So you know, it would depend on whether Americans really went in, I think, would depend a lot on how things progressed. If, if they sent American aircraft carrier, 5,000 sailors to the bottom of the sea, well, then Americans might fight for those 5,000 lives in ways they wouldn't fight for Taiwan. But if China instead did the smart thing, which was to blockade Taiwan, and which wouldn't be difficult, and to announce that any attempt to run the blockade would be an act of war, then they create a strategic pause in which not just Washington, but all of the United States, and Canada, and Japan, looking down the barrel of the gun, have time in which they have to think, do we risk World War III over this? Do we risk nuclear Armageddon over this? And I'm quite sure that under those circumstances, the answer would be, sorry, but probably not, you know? Um, So we, 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 we do not know where this goes. But precisely because, you know, the morning that we wake up to find that China has attacked Taiwan or instituted a blockade, that's a very, very bad morning because we don't have a good answer. And so the goal of policy is to make sure that morning doesn't happen. And the way to make sure that that is true is to continually convince Xi Jinping that the costs are too high. And that is within our ken. That we can do
1: this is fascinating and I, and as you talk about taiwan and and beijing I'm reminded that there is a, a lot of diversity in what some call the sinosphere the 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 world of of uh, sort of chinese language peoples and i know you spent a lot of time in canada where ethnically chinese uh canadians make up about 5% of the population i think overall which is significant they tend to be geographically concentrated in the spirit of uh, Canusa Street, working both sides of the street, can you do you have any reflection on you know the Canadian Chinese community? Maybe in contrast with the American Chinese community and how they view these these issues.
0: In in both cases, the United States and Canadian Chinese communities, uh, it's a very diverse community. There isn't one community, so that you have um, you know the astronauts, the the, the Hong Kongers uh, who mostly went to British Columbia but then spread other areas to get a Canadian passport as an insurance policy before Hong Kong reverted to the mainland in 1997. Now, a lot of those people, a few years after 97, when things seemed to be going well, went back to Hong Kong. And now there's, you know, the the, the third exodus, the second one from, from Hong Kong back. Then you've got the uh, people who were from mainland China. But even there, there are huge generational differences. A lot of the people who came in the 80s came planning to stay. They got their PhDs. Uh, They were in Canada when the Tiananmen Massacre happened, and they decided that this is who we are now. Um, But you've also got a new, much larger wave, and this is true in the United States too, of young students coming to universities all over Canada who are coming for largely transactional reasons. They don't see it as life-changing. They see it as a place to get a good degree in finance or accounting or whatever it is, and to then go back to China. And these folks, we don't have great data on them, but they're probably somewhat more aligned uh, with Chinese, you know, mainland Chinese views. So I don't think we have an adequate understanding. I'm not sure that we've we've segmented it, but obviously these are large and very di- diverse communities. That's true in both countries, and in Canada and in the United States, a lot of the people who have come. From the PRC since the opening, use the mainland Chinese WeChat app as their primary source of communications, and this is an app that is managed, censored, monitored from mainland China. And the users know it, and it's not just something that they use to chat with their relatives back in China. They also use it to communicate with each other, and they get a lot of their information there. So you've got you've got a very diverse community communities throughout. North America that can't be easily characterized as pro this or anti that. I
1: appreciate you saying that, because when we were talking earlier about the balloons, that Canada is a Pacific nation, Canada also is a nation with which is not indifferent to what's going on in China. And that's a complexity that I think it's easy for Americans to miss sometimes. Um, so I'm glad you said that. Uh, Scotty, I know you wanted to ask one more before we run out of our time.
2: Well, that's right. And Robert, you mentioned uh The Chinese app, it makes me think about the Chinese surveillance state, if you will. I wonder if you could um, describe that to our listeners. And also, it makes me think about TikTok, which, you know, is one of those uh, Chinese exports that is quite clever, um, has taken hold, but also perhaps a tool for um, gathering data. Um, on people, and it looks like Congress may ban it. So maybe you could talk to us about that a little bit.
0: So China under Xi Jinping is moving from authoritarianism to techno-totalitarianism. Artificial intelligence, big data, uh, facial recognition, China's ability to monitor, control, and analyze in real time everything that's going on digitally, give the government tools that prior Chinese governments also would have used had they had those tools. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we saw this especially during Covid when everybody had to have either a red or a green code based on on their whether they had uh, tested positive for the virus or not. That determined whether they could go into restaurants, whether they could go into stores, whether they could lead, leave their neighborhoods. China already has the ability to track and monitor all of this uh, all the activity of its people. And so if they have an interest in you, or if you are identified with it when a CCTV camera spans, it know, pans across a crowd, they can see you. They can know where you've been. They can know where you shop. They can look at your social media. They can see who you are friends with. They've got everything at one shot. Now, since the end of zero COVID, China has gotten rid of the color codes, but the people have already had this experience of, of this techno totalitarianism. And so the, one of the questions is how much does this spread? beyond China's borders? How much is China using its global media platforms like TikTok and WeChat to collect data on foreigners and to censor content? Right now, you're right. Congress is very focused that we need to ban TikTok. Well, I understand the arguments, you know, that China can collect all this data on Americans and they can also propagandize. Uh, But most of what TikTok is used for, I think it's pretty widely understood. It's just another fuel for adolescent narcissism, which is always going to have outlets here and there. And they communicate with each other. And it's it's silly dances. uh, And it's mostly just nonsense. And while I don't have no concerns about TikTok, but it isn't worthy of its current status in Congress of being sort of a symbol for all that is evil in China. And if we ban TikTok vis-a-vis China, we will not be an iota more safe. It would be sort of purely symbolic. I would be more concerned about WeChat in that, you know, in in North America, Canada and the U.S., this is the first time in history that a Mm -hmm. vital component of our societies, namely Canadians and Americans of Chinese origin, get most of their information and do most of their communicating on a platform that is controlled, managed and censored by a hostile foreign power on Canadian soil, on American soil that's a problem at the same time when we speak of banning it we've got first amendment or freedom of speech problems uh in that you say well is this more nefarious than let me pick your poison white nationalist websites which are perfectly free uh to to, to run their own platforms we've got a, a, a a real problem here in figuring out whether this is viewed as a national security issue or as a first amendment issue but again, TikTok, if China's a problem, if China is a threat, as we say it is, it's not because of TikTok. And it's not that there's nothing to be concerned about, but let's not pretend that if we ban TikTok, we will have accomplished much.
2: Interesting. All right. My last question to you, there's, we could go on all day, but I guess my last question is, one of the biggest policy areas that Canada and the United States are talking about vis-a-vis China um, is critical minerals, the development, processing, recycling of critical minerals. And we know that critical minerals are found everywhere in the world, uh, pretty much. And we know that they're used for not only carbon transition, whether it's wind turbines or solar panels, but they're also used for defense goods, um, you know, targeted missiles, et cetera, and consumer goods but the 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 other thing that we know that Canada and the United States are trying to get a handle on is China does 80% of the world's processing of a bunch of these things so it has this economic uh stranglehold uh on on the rest of the world and it and it's we've saw it's willing to use that as it as it exercised against Japan what, a decade ago or whatever so uh, do you think Canada and the United States other partners Australia have a hope of uh, decoupling with China, or or watering down China's influence, if 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 we focus on it, or do you think it's just one of those things where there's a lot of rhetoric about it by the leader, by the political leadership, but in real world economic reality, we're going to continue uh, to depend on China.
0: Well, the, the most most things we speak, we always speak in absolute terms about ideal policies, right? Most right. things are, are muddles, right? Most policies are, are muddles. Most marriages are muddles. Most institutions are muddled. They're just going to muddle through, right? Um, but uh, the, the, the threat of a catastrophic collapse because of something like Taiwan is, is, is growing. And if we were in a kinetic conflict, fancy words for war with China, we can be pretty sure they'd cut off all critical minerals. What, why wouldn't they? So the way out of this stranglehold, the only way is coordinated industrial policy over the course of decades so can you know primarily Canada and the United States but you say Australia and others can they coordinate uh their efforts both at extraction and refining and it has to be both in a way that will withstand the political cycles in all of our various countries and it's going to take real commitment uh and it can't be based on private investment the reason being That anytime we try to open up a new mine, of course, these, these take, you know, 10 years to develop the mines and to get the ores out. So it's a long-term investment if, if you're looking for private capital. And anytime we, we take a pass at doing that, China floods the market, lowers the price of the critical minerals and scares off all the investors. So it has to be government and it has to be coordinated. So again, this is a, a coordinated, um, industrial policy over the long term, which we have never done. Do we have a sufficient sense of urgency and alarm to do that? Uh, I don't know. I tend to think that the spy balloon was not the crisis. It's sort of a wake-up call, but it isn't the crisis that really commits us to long-term investments and incurring long-term costs. I don't think we're quite there yet, and our trade balances with China indicate that we're not.
2: Well, that's pretty sobering, Robert, uh, and a sobering note to end on. We haven't even gotten into semiconductors, which maybe is a, a topic for an entire uh, new discussion. But uh, on behalf of our listeners and Chris and myself, I just want to say thank you for spending time with us. I always learn something from you every single time we get together, whether it's on the podcast or in other forums. So thank you very much for uh, taking the time.
0: Well, Thank, thank you. Enjoy it.
2: Well, Chris, how lucky are you to work in a place with such uh, interesting, informed experts, true experts in global policy? I thought Robert Daly was absolutely uh, extraordinary. I think that every time I talk to him, and and uh, I know I'm not the only one because he's one of the most quoted, knowledgeable uh, experts on China policy that the U.S. has.
1: He is, but um, I have to say he's also someone who has real interest in Canada. And I tried to tee him up to tell the story, but I can just share informally when he was in Beijing at one point he played on a pickup hockey team with the Canadian embassy uh playing the the Soviets then Russians uh and you know playing it was it was all intramural it was all for fun but um but he was he was excellent he was a goalie so they they, that's right so he's got some great friends uh, in Canada he understands Canada I think really well and our own state departments on occasion asked him to come and do programs in Mandarin and in Western Canada in Toronto and so on. And he's just, he's someone who is truly uh, belongs on Canusa street, but brings to it this deep understanding of, of China, which is so, so important.
2: Well, that's right. And his, you know, his coin of phrase, his turn of phrase, uh, thinking of China as techno totalitarians uh, is quite interesting. Uh, and uh, anyway, as I said, I learned a lot. So always, always good to be with you. And, and thank you for bringing your uh, Mandarin Sesame Street guy with us because he explained things quite well.
1: Well, you're nice to say that it makes my life great, but Scotty, I, I learn from you as well. So I just like to surround myself with smart people who are interesting and have a good turn of phrase. And, and that's you, that's Robert. Uh, that's life on Canusa Street.
2: <laughs> that, it, it is indeed. And we'll see you next time. Hopefully no balloons hovering above next time, uh, but we'll see you next time on Canusa Street.
1: Absolutely. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.